Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you from these United States of America. I am in Des Moines, Iowa, where I'm the Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the Director of the Zeta Institute for Foundation and Ethics and Leadership. You can find both of those at mchs.edu and zetainstitute.com. Bud, out in Pittsburgh land, what do you do? I'm the Director at the National Institute for Newman Studies. Uh, We are into all things Newman. Newman Scholarship, uh, helping folks know more about Newman, and you can find out about our work at newmanstudies.org. Yeah, we're coming to you through the miracle of technology spanning time zones, thanks to Mercy One Studios and our uh, great people running the, the boards, Jimmy and Tony. Uh, you know, it's not Christmas, bud, so I haven't bought them anything like a gift card or anything, but I think you were telling me that there's there's something that went on at Pittsburgh where maybe we could have some great gift ideas from them. Something about pickles. You want to we want to tell well, us it, what's going on in Pittsburgh and this, should this we invite week, gifts for everybody from this said conference? This past weekend, uh, it was Christmas in, in July of sorts here in Pittsburgh. They do their their picklesburg, <laughs> so it's it's all things all things. They pickles. go away from French fries for one weekend. Yeah, cut the French fries. We're going to scale back on our French fry consumption. Move to pickles. There's pickle beer, you know, pickle paraphernalia. So mark your calendars, folks. You can maybe stay at Nens and drive over to the pickle pickle festival next year. That's right. And so, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, the Cardinals were in town right before them, and we sort of pickled the Pirates. There you go. <laughs> Uh, sorry, that was bad. Um, I just need to make sure that we brag while we have time, bud, that we have been either tied with the Cubs or yep. in first place. It might not last very long, so let's get it on record. The NL Central, at least, has been pretty fun around here, especially with our main man, um, you know, uh, John Leonetti, to, to, to give him some gruff. That's right. There in Des Moines, you're surrounded by Cubs fans, so we have to get in our barbs when we can. But I don't know. The NL Central will go right down to this to the stretch this year, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. And one of the things that we also want to, you know, uh, talk about barbs and things like this, um, we got to, uh, here at Iowa Catholic Radio, be out and about among the people because this last weekend uh, we had the Cathedral Concert uh, Series, at, uh, and it was this big concert, uh, various groups, everything from rap to salsa to this band. I think they called themselves a Raz band, but basically they were people who, uh, uh, they're, they're band nerds, and half of them, like te- and this is them saying this, half of them teach band uh, in the local Des Moines area. And they played the hits, bud, but only using, like, horns, saxophones, and, like, percussion from, you know, like, the band room. And uh, it was a fantastic time. Justin White uh, had a lot to do with that. Got a call out, you know, uh, Bishop Pates, too, who was there playing uh, bags and presumably beating people. And then, of course, like, I was sitting there at the table with Jimmy. So uh, Iowa Catholic Radio out and about doing some cool stuff, listening to some cool tunes um, if you're running around the Des Moines area. Yeah, that sounds like a great time, and so maybe it's like a, a proper farewell send-off for Bishop Pates. That's right. We should have had him get up there and jam on, like, yeah. do you think he would bass guitar, or is he more like a fiddle? He is Irish, so maybe he could uh, He's always struck me as a saxophonist. I don't a know why. <laughs> we'll have to ask him next time, <laughs> next time we see him. Play some, like, uh, 
Kenny G to go off yeah. into uh, retirement. Um, as always, we're brought to you by Mercy College of Health Sciences, who underwrites our show. Um, but you uh, getting done because you were doing a uh, one of the the classes for. Uh, servant leadership. Um, yeah, are you starting to you know look longingly at each paper and realizing that uh, you're going to send these students off into the the great wild blue yonder here soon? Yeah, my little babies are all grown it up, so I'm feeling proud of them. But I had a good crop of students for the summer course, and it's uh, I, we've mentioned this before on the show, but it's great to see what they're out and about doing in the community. Well, we're uh, on our end doing orientations for new students who are coming in, um, getting to inform them about what's going on. I filmed a video, uh, so even when I'm gone, Bo will be uh, blowing up the big screen, uh, orientating people to the mission and ministry of Mercy College. So, you know, if, if you're wondering, should I go to Mercy College, and being able to see Bo on video just tips you over to go, that's now a reality, and I just wanted to get that out there. Wow, you've hit the big time, so I feel honored to be your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of uh, honors today, it's an honor to have our guest on. Bud, do you want to uh, describe uh, who we're going to be listening to? Because, frankly, he's out there at NINS, and uh, you, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to be outmanned uh, from the Pittsburgh side, uh, so it's a pretty exciting show today. Yeah, I'm pretty excited today. It's two against one. I've got um, uh, Dr. Tony Clark uh, here. I was going to say in studio. But I guess outside of studio, right. he's a, he's actually a visiting scholar here at the Institute, and I cornered him last minute, and he graciously has given us some of his time. But Dr. Clark is a historian and writer. He teaches at Whitworth University in Washington, and he's a professor of, of Chinese history there and an expert on all things regarding the Catholic Church in China, which, of course, has become you know a pressing topic in our own time. So... Uh, last week, he did an interview on the El Cresta show. This week, I'd like to tell myself that he's moving up, stepping <laughs> up and doing the Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio. But uh, honestly, Bo, I've, he's been great to have in-house, and we're both like theology nerds and liturgy geeks. So we've just, uh, it's been harder to get work done because we keep getting like uh, uh, drawn into conversations about, you know, l- liturgy and and all that fun stuff. Well, that's the the best time, you know, is when you can't get work done because the people are good. If you were to, yeah. if if it's people you can't stand, you're like, yeah, we all got our work done in two weeks, and now we're just sitting here. So, um, I think we're gonna ha- run into the same problem. Uh, we'll run out of time before we even get into everything we want to talk about. But folks need to stick around because it's going to be a great show. So for Bud, this is Bo Bonner. This is the Uncommon Good. We're going to be right back after these messages. So stick around, and we'll be right back after this. <laughs> We're back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the show. Bud, I'm going to throw it to you to introduce our guest for the day. So our guest this morning is uh, Dr. Anthony Clark. He's an American sinologist, historian, and writer, has authored dozens of books, articles, and other publications, uh, many of them regarding um, ancient Chinese history, but also is a well-known resource for um, the Catholic Church in China today. Uh, he's pre- previously taught at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, I guess, and now uh, is at Whitworth University in Washington. Dr. Clark, thanks for being with us. Oh, goodness, thank you. Yes, well, I, I before Alabama, I taught at Oregon, so there's a kind of antagonism between you know, Go Ducks and Roll Tide. Yes, 
<laughs> and I'm a, I'm a big Red fan, so we're covering all our bases this right. morning. I was going to say the early <laughs> 2000s in football is well represented. So. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess in starting off the show, this is something that um, I've dabbled in, but having an expert like yourself on, I'm really curious to know more. So last year, correct, in, in 2018, the um, Vatican authorities came to an agreement um, with the Chinese government regarding the place of, of Catholics in China and sort of the regulation of how ministry is done there and things. As, as a starting point, could you just give our listeners a better sense of what that agreement was about, what were kind of the major steps taken? Right. So the, 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 that is an um, amazingly important question, because as of this moment, no one knows what the agreement is. So it's still the provisional agreement was signed September 22, 2018, and it was the first time since 1949, the first time since China became officially a communist country, that the Vatican has uh, actually sat at the table in Beijing with communist authorities in China and signed an agreement. It was signed. Uh, we know that. The Vatican has made it very open and clear with the world that it signed an agreement. The agreement is provisional and, and, and is one of the tightest secrets uh, in, in Vatican history. Re- nobody knows what is in the agreement, but what's leaked is that it has to do largely with the consecration of bishops and sort of changing and more sort of normalizing how, how that how functions. Uh, Tony, this is Bo, so uh, thank you for, for being on the show, and especially, uh, you know, being not in studio but with Bud, you know, so I, I you know, you guys be patient with me and don't team up on me too much. Um, for, for people who hear, you know, okay, so the Vatican and diplomacy, um, maybe some people think this sounds too much like statecraft or that this sounds like capitulation, but actually in the history of the Church, a lot of the work of the Vatican has been precisely diplomatic negotiations, um, not only between relationships with the Vatican and a state, but in min- in many world affairs. All, all someone has to do is go look at um, the role of the Vatican in World War I and World War II, for instance. Um, when we point out that the Church hasn't had diplomatic ties since China has become a, a communist country. Uh, so that, that implies, of course, that there were before that. Um, we, we don't have, of course, time, although it'd be great to, to catch the whole historical rundown. Um, but how much of a, of a breach was that that, that, that when the communist government took over from China, what were relationships in, in a sort of general way like between the Vatican and China? And, and how decisive has that been in the region that there's been such a long time between these two institutions talking to each other? Oh, well, officially, the Vatican still does not have official uh, relations with diplomatic relations with China. And that ended really in 1949. And before 1949, there there was a, a diplomatic nuncio in, in China. And to sort of even go back further, we have to say that the Vatican, before it let go of what it called the sort of Vatican court, the court of the Vatican was part of this mechanism that dealt with other empires and, and nation states. And then that shifted to what we would call the Secretary of State. The Vatican does have a Secretary of State, Cardinal Perelin, who is the kind of diplomatic voice for the Vatican. So the Holy See does necessarily have diplomatic relations with most, most countries, except China. It's one of the very few exa- uh, examples where China does not have official diplomatic relations. It does officially with Taiwan, and, and that's an entirely separate and complicated topic. But just in, very briefly... Since the Vatican has no official relations 
there has not been a moment wherein China and the Vatican has signed a document together. And that happened for the very first time just last year in September. So it, it is monumental. It's monumental the Vatican is actually sitting at the table um, uh, with, with the communist authorities in Beijing and, and having, having, having discourse and having signed an agreement. Tony, it's been fascinating for me with having you here in Pittsburgh, learning about this whole situation. And I'll be honest, you know, it's a, we're the body of Christ. We're a global body. And if one uh, member of the body is hurting, we all are. And so I try to remain abreast of these things. I'll be honest, like, uh, see, like seeing different articles in the media, uh, sometimes with China, it's tough to sort out, you know, exactly what's going on. It's such a large, complicated context. But one thing that you said to me in a conversation last week that jumped out was um, some of the details about what's what's called the underground Catholic Church there. And uh, living in the United States, we just don't have this experience, like this sort of thing going on. Historically, how did the underground Catholic Church arise, and what you know, uh, what what's it kind of like on the ground there for Catholics? Yeah. Oh, China is China is. At this moment, it's one of the fastest-growing Catholic communities on Earth. It's also one of the most divided Catholic communities. We could almost say that here in the United States, we are divided over a lot of issues, right? But China is less divided over sort of what I would call um, issues of morality or the, the issues of sort of church governance, kind of, uh, than it is divided over how it defines itself in, in, in as much as one group uh, considers itself sanctioned, that would be the above ground, and the other group considers itself under the underground church or the unsanctioned church. And that really began probably in 1957 when the uh, communist government uh, inaugurated what it called the, the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, wherein all Catholics who were to be sanctioned had to agree to be self-propagating, self-promoting, and, and, and uh, self-governing. That is, that is the, the church could not have foreign missionaries. It had to propagate itself. It had to fund itself. And most importantly, it could have no influence of a foreign or a non-Chinese uh, authoritative governmental uh, person or agency, so i.e. no pope. So that happened in 1957. And then you started to see a kind of growth of an underground church, that is, a church that, a, well, a community that refused to uh, to in any way deny the primacy of Peter in Rome. And it got even more intense. The sort of last thing I can say about this topic is in, from 1966 uh, to 1976, religion in China was essentially illegal under Chairman Mao. They took over all Catholic churches and made it illegal to practice any religion. At that time, mm. Catholics went completely, all Catholics went underground because the, that was the only way to actually practice one's faith. In, 19, in the 1980s, many churches were given back, and then you have the, the distinction between those who remained underground and those who essentially uh, agreed to be sanctioned and sign agreements with the government to practice local uh, public ministry under the, the, the guidelines of the party. So I know you've said that there's an element of secrecy here, and I'm sure you have to tread delicately, if, if nothing else, for the fact that we don't know precisely all of the details of, of the agreement that was made. But from a distance, I've, I've heard rumblings that um, maybe priests who have served that underground community, and I know also 
uh, uh, Cardinal Zen have said some things where there's there's some pretty serious concerns about maybe this this diplomatic move. So I was looking at a quotation from one of your pieces where um, Cardinal Zen remarks that um, that church authorities were giving the flock into the mouths of wolves. It's an incredible betrayal, and I'm guessing for those who um, have maybe I don't know how to phrase it, like resisted or or stirred firm in the face of the difficulties of practicing the faith in China. This might seem like um, a, a concession of sorts to the communists, and not fully uh, remaining aware or sensitive to the concerns of, of like the Catholic lay faithful. Right. Um, I mean, the Holy See's work is to bring Jesus Christ to the to to the world, and and the faith of the Church to all nations. And, and I think, to be fair, the Holy See, even in these recent, this is sort of my concession before I sort of offer a sort of circuitous criticism. The Holy See really is, I I think, in earnest trying to do that. Um, But but Cardinal Zen uh, and and many, many other cardinals and bishops uh, and and, and clergy see that there are complications that have arisen from this agreement. I I, I think that the media often presents things in a certain way. Um, One of the things that I personally like to do is walk with priests in China through Chinese villages. I just returned and had uh, opportunities to meet with priests in in sanctioned and unsanctioned contexts. And I guess in a nutshell, things are more complicated now than they were before the agreement. So uh, there is, uh, I I have to say, uh, good evidence. I've seen it myself of the underground community, the so-called unsanctioned community, is being persecuted in ways mm-hmm. that I, I've not ever seen. And even the sanctioned community, I walked, one short example, I walked through a village into a Marian shrine in one of China's largest Catholic areas, Shanxi province, and the priest is showing me places where the government had literally just been and had and destroyed Catholic statuary, Catholic objects, had really bullied the local Catholics there, um, to quote-unquote sinicize, to make the church look more Chinese and accommodate more to the Chinese way of thinking uh, about what religion should look like and f- how it should function. So uh, many sanctioned churches and unsanctioned churches are now being destroyed. Um, many, many, especially the sort of so-called underground clergy, are being arrested. It's a complicated time, and, and I think it has, has not gotten better. That would be my assessment. Um, so this is all crucial things I, for the West to understand, and unfortunately, like we're pretty much admitting on air, do not understand enough. So if I'm grabbing at analogs that people might be slightly more familiar with in order to, um, uh, to, to get at this in their mind, what comes to mind, of course, is something like the French Revolution and then the Japanese persecutions that sort of made the rounds people understanding because of uh, the book and the movie Silence and uh, the sort of like worries about Western infiltration, things like this. I guess my question real quick is how helpful is it to try to compare to something like, you know, the, the, the state church of the French Revolution or the Japanese concerns with missionaries? Or how much is this unique to China and, and those sort of comparisons that get made in the things rather than bring them to light? I, I, don't, I think actually that these comparisons can be helpful in, in, in the sense that uh, well, China is certainly unique. It's unique. It's 
I would compare it more to the Church of England, the English Reformation, than I would the French Revolution. Okay. Personally, because there is this sense of establishing a kind of national church, a national establishment, and that is the government's preference, that there is, an, in fact, in 1951, the government asked the Chinese priest, uh, he was a bishop, actually, named uh, uh, Zhou Jishi, they asked him, would you be, or do you feel qualified to be a pope? They wanted to create a, a papacy in China mm. to create its own national church. And the, the bishop had a brilliant answer. He said, if you think I'm qualified, then I'd be happy to be the pope as long as two conditions are met. I'm elected in a, in a general conclave in Rome and that I rule the entire church from Rome. And, and for that, he was arrested and, and put into prison and, and died there in 1972. Oh, so um, the comparisons do work in a sense that the government wants to create a national church. Uh, a national establishment that is independent. Um, and then I think certainly it would like to see religion e- be erased eventually. Um, the difference is that the Church of England, under the, under the, the sort of rule of supremacy and the, the royal family and parliament, is, is different than the communist system, inasmuch as officially Christianity isn't, uh, isn't intended to be erased. In, in, the, in the Chinese constitution, it allows in Article 36 religious freedom, but it is very clear in the Constitution that religion should be a temporary uh, a temporary uh, thing within the nation, and that the government has rights to, to uh, work to erase religion. So that is the, the very distinct difference between the French Revolution, the English Reformation, and the, the current context in China. See, this starts to be interesting because it's, it's like if if you're if you're familiar with certain aspects of of church history and in these pressing issues like the national church versus you know the control of rome and uh the creation of nation states right that you you can see a lot of this stuff sort of bubbling back up but in this completely different key not only because of of the communist uh angle but also um because of uh, this happening in china um we're running up about with like 5 minutes left before the break is there, is there maybe a key or essential things that listeners should know just about the Chinese, like, so not even talking about the communist one, but maybe the Eastern Asian um, understanding of religion and sort of civic life that adds another layer to us trying to understand what's going on when we can say you can have religious freedom, but also we're trying to eradicate it? I think what, what I would like... Uh, people in the West personally to know about the church in China is is fundamentally that it is a persecuted church, and that I would say with very very few exceptions, Chinese Catholics have a strong sense of papal supremacy, have a strong sense of communion with Peter, and most Chinese Catholics I would say nearly 100 percent would like to see the entire communist government end. Um, and when I ask Chinese Catholics, what can the West do for you? The, 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 the response is almost unanimously, remember we're part of your body. Remember we're part of the church because we often feel like we're divided. The Great Wall has kept us from the rest of the church universal. And the second thing they say is we need more than anything prayers. So I think those are the things I would want to convey mostly. They're, div- they're, they're richly devout. And, it, and, I, and I think also we need to be careful of using the words underground and above ground. I know I've used those terms for convenience, but it's really one persecuted church. And in most places, they actually go to church together. 
and, and bishops of the so-called underground and above-ground in many, many places actually have lived in the same residence. So there's far more of an ambiguity of lines than most people think. Tony, this kind of dovetails with what Bo was just asking, but I, I, you've, you've described the church there as very devout, and here in the United States, the language that we like to use, we, we talk a lot about religious freedom and see that as kind of uh, almost like necessary to practice faith. Uh, why, why do you think Catholicism has exploded in China recently? What's kind of been driving that devotion, especially since it's you know such a different context from our own? Right, right. That's an incredibly good question. Um, first, if you type in religious freedom in a search in, engine in China, uh, there is a mechanism to actually punish you by removing your privileges to search the Internet. So religious freedom as a concept is a completely um, taboo, almost illegal t- way of thinking in, in mainland China right now. And so two things, then, to connect it. One is I think materialism is the new religion of China. Money, making money, is the new religion of China. And materialism is empty, and, it, and I think it makes our souls and hearts miserable. So China is growing for two reasons. One, it's a persecuted church. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the faith, the seed of Christianity. So as a persecuted church, for some reason, we Christians grow under persecution. And second, it's a church that is growing in a society that is denying anything supernatural and beyond material. And many, many Chinese Catholics are seeing the vacuousness of the materialistic culture and are turning to the faith as a way to find true peace and respite in this very complicated world. Well, and we're, we're coming up to the break, but just in a quick manner, you, you said, you know, you go by a Marian shrine. So if people here in the West want to pray for uh, our Chinese brothers and sisters, like you said, is there maybe an apparition uh, of, of Mary that, or a mantle that uh, we should direct our prayers to in that regard? In, in China, they just say what they, they say, Sheng uh, Mu, our Holy Mother, Zhonghua Sheng Mu, the Holy Mother of China. Uh, th- there is one, Shushan, S-H-E-S-H-A-N, Our Lady of Shushan, is an, an incredibly popular devotion. So really, just Our Lady of China and Our Lady of Shushan, those are the two uh, kind of, those are the two Marian focuses. And Pope Benedict, uh, Emeritus Benedict XVI, actually authored a prayer to Our Lady of Shushan that is beautiful and uh, beloved in mainland China, and you can find it on the Internet. And uh, many, many Catholics who are devoted to the Church in China will pray that prayer. Uh, well, this is this is fantastic. We have an entire uh, other segment, so uh, folks, you want to make sure to come back, but in the meantime, Our Lady of China, pray for our pres- persecuted brothers and sisters. This is The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We will be back right after these messages. <laughs> back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Thank you for joining us on this Wednesday, Bud, if you want to reintroduce our guests and get the topic back going. Yes, our guest uh, this morning is Dr. Tony Clark. He's a visiting scholar right now at the Newman Institute, but uh, his daytime job is teaching at Whitworth University, uh, where he's an expert in um, Sino-Western relations, ancient Chinese history, and Catholic missionary efforts in that part of the world. Thanks again, Tony, for coming back on. My pleasure. Yeah. So uh, I hope it doesn't feel too much this morning like uh, you're sort of um, our answer man. (laughs) 
But, you know, having you on the show, it's just fascinating for me to get a real in-depth look at a part of the Catholic experience that I'm, I'm personally less familiar with. And I'm curious, um, we, we, talked, uh, we, we talked on the first half of this show about some of the current goings on in, uh, in China in relation to the Catholic Church. I'm curious about some of the history there, and specifically what comes to mind is I know that Catholic missionaries have always tried to navigate this kind of line between we're preaching a message that's seen as universal and yet that grew up in very specific cultural contexts. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, um, how, do, how have the Chinese at different points in history thought about Christianity and general Catholicism in specific? Has it sometimes been perceived culturally as something sort of foreign and, and therefore maybe a betrayal of your own cultural identity to convert to the Catholic faith? Yeah, you know, there's a saying in, in mainland China, and you never, you never hear this on the media. You, you have to speak Chinese to hear this saying, but there's a saying in mainland China, and it, I'll translate it, but it, it goes like this, which literally means, for every more Christian, you have one less Chinese person. Hmm. And, hmm. and the sense is that once you convert to Christianity, you've essentially forfeited your Chinese identity. And that is a narrative that has been promulgated in China for goodness, for a millennia. And, you know, we often think that, especially Westerners often think that China is a missionary church. And and I I resist that because the first Christians in China arrived in 635. Mm. America didn't have its first missionary for a thousand years later. So it's an old, old church. It really isn't a missionary church. It's its own church that has its own issues and conundrums. And one of the things that Christians in China have struggled against is this notion that you're not Chinese if you're a Christian. And their, and their response is, do you think Buddhism is Chinese? And literally 100% of Chinese will say, of course it is. Well, Buddhism come, came from India right. or Nepal. So it, it's, <laughs> it's no, Christianity is no less a Chinese religion than Buddhism is. So that there's something to work, uh, there's some, something that, that the Christians have tried to work against for a long time. Um, and then also, the irony, and I'll sort of end that, I'll sort of end my answer with this, the irony of this is that whereas in post-1949, that is in sort of new communist China, whereas the government has worked against traditional Chinese culture, like the practice of, for example, in China you wear white at a funeral, um, well, the interesting thing is, the irony is, is that it's the Catholic Christians who have retained old Chinese customs more, literally more, than post-1949 Chinese society. So, in a way, now you can see that the Chinese Catholics, Chinese Christians, have retained traditional cultural mores more so than the, the sort of mainstream Chinese citizen. Oh, man, that... Okay, this is fascinating. One of the... Uh, one of my favorite authors, his name's Simon Lace, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, but he, he wrote quite a bit about, of course, China as well. He very famously was writing about Mao when other people in the Francophone world were, uh, let's say, uh, not writing as honestly as they could about him. That's the nicest <laughs> way I can put it. Right. Um, but he wrote a, an article where he says, one of the hardest things for Westerners to understand is the Chinese, of course, have a very deep understanding of tradition, but it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in the same way maybe as Europeans. Europeans will try to preserve buildings for thousands of years. And he said, this is, he says it's kind of uh, overgeneralizing, but there's a real way in which uh, the Chinese are much more comfortable with, you know, 
leveling a new building and building new... He says, yes, the eternal city, yes. But then otherwise, they really kind of see tradition. I don't know. I'm, like, again, uh, overgeneralizing even his article, but, you know, something more like poetically or or things like this. The, The point that I'm trying to get at is when people start to understand things like tradition, it's easy for us to map our understandings, you know, over the globe and, and, and misunderstand certain contexts. Um, but I'm really intrigued by the idea that it's actually Catholic Christians in China who've been there for a long time because they've understood this way in which um, the eternal became incarnate so that there's, there's something incarnational about Christianizing, um, you know, the, the, the ways and means of a people that, that, that they maybe are a more authentic uh, sign and signification of what Chinese culture is like. Um, is there more that you can say about that or, or the, how this is a uniquely Catholic thing to do is to preserve certain aspects um, of a people's culture uh, that modernity, whether it's capitalist or communistic, has no interest in? Right. Um, first off, I love Simon Lays. He's a great writer, and he um, he has something when he talks about tradition having its own sense in 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 China. One, two things, I guess, to answer that question. One is that uh, we do tend to build buildings. For example, if we just want to use architecture as a metaphor, we'll build a building, and we think that by building this building in masonry and and giving it the sense of of permanence that it, it, it represents the permanence of the Church. Right? Mm. So uh, we'll expect a Church to exist like Notre Dame. Sadly, it suffered recently, but we'll, we'll expect a Church to last for, from the medieval period into the modern period. Now, China has a different sense of, of, of tradition. It will tear down a, ch- a building, but, but uniquely it will rebuild it exactly as it was. Mm. So it's a new building, but it has the same, in a way, structural DNA, and the, the Chinese church does very much, it, it views ecclesiology not as a kind of grafting onto another culture of Christianity, but in, more of an incarnate, the word they would use is incarnational. You, you incarnate Christianity within that soil, and it manifests itself in that way, but it's the exact same incarnation, just it's the, it's the same plant planted in a, another place. Mm. So it might, it might look slightly differently, but, but here's the other irony. Whereas the missionaries in the 1920s, 1930s, 1950s, certainly even today, many Westerners will tell China, you know, you should build churches in your own style. China, to this moment, is still building its churches in Romanesque and Gothic styles. Why? Hmm. Because two reasons. One, it, it says we're Chinese, we should be able to decide what architecture we want to use. Right? Hmm. <laughs> so, but, but secondly, secondly, um, they want to be part of the church universal. There is no sense of, among Chinese Catholics that they want to be a separate, independent church. They want to be part of the body that everyone shares. And so for them, building a Gothic church represents a connectedness to their fellow Catholics, their fellow Christians in France, in Pittsburgh, in Iowa, in other places of the world. The same faith, the same church. One thread that or one term that keeps coming back to my mind in this conversation is the term ethnocentrism. And in a- academic circles, this is sometimes used in less helpful ways. But constructively, it's just kind of a warning to say, don't try to always read like the rest of the world and other cultures through uh, the lens of your own cultural experience. Um, and uh, I guess 
Tony, though, there's always the temptation on my part to try to, like, what's kind of like the larger lessons that we draw from this? And just hearing you talk about the experience of Catholics in China, um, I go back to, like, you were just talking about, like, a good form of enculturation. I feel like now, at this point in American history, we actually were facing a kind of temptation where there's serious concerns about how our economic arrangement has not worked out well for certain segments of society. So sometimes you do hear um, commentators in our context sort of speaking about communism as a possible different direction or even sometimes in glowing terms. I know in one of your pieces you quoted uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, who was drawing on Pius XI saying that there's a fundamental opposition between communism and Christianity. And I'm guessing, based on your um, travels to China, you would you would second that warning. I think one of the, so, yeah, you know, one of the things I must teach in my courses on Chinese history is we read the Communist Manifesto, we look at Marx and Engels. Certainly this is, and we read other Marxist documents, especially Maoist Marxist documents, which are not, I mean, they're, they're different, they're modified. So one, one of the things that, that, that we confront in, in my courses is we look at communism, and we, and most of my students are Christian. We ask, how does this, does this or does this not fit with Christianity? And we all have to admit there are parts. Certainly there are parts. Exploitation is bad. Right? This is, there are things that line up with church teaching. But by and large, I think any, in my mind, and this, could, this is a little almost pugnacious, but I almost think that if, if you honestly read papal documents and, and the documents of Marx, you're going to see that they conflict. And not only that, but they conflict on, in spiritual matters which are the very core of who we are. So um, one of the things that I always think to myself as a, as a curative measure, whenever I read an article, and I'll conjure it, the recent article in America, um, that, that sort of suggests that communists are, are good people, perhaps, and that, 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 that the Catholic faith and communism can be symbiotic. One of the curative measures that I would offer is travel to China with me and, and confront the realities of communist states because uh, I think that is, it is a stark uh, contrast to the utopic yeah. expectation that communism works. I'm, I'm uh, certainly uh, in favor of the church's traditional position. I think an interesting thing about this, too, is both about enculturation and then just speaking about this in terms of specifically communism in China and then what we talk, started the show off of, the, the, the historic document with the Vatican and the Chinese state is Americans are prone to say whatever they want about religion, but then absolutely deal with it in individualistic terms. So Catholicism is a choice I make uh, of what I'm sort of interested in. To, to put it very starkly, it becomes sort of a consumeristic identity. Sure, I buy Catholic things. I do Catholic things on the weekend. Um, and that's how we sort of roll you know, for better or worse in many occasions. Um, it, it's also the case when we're imagining potential futures that are different, right? So um, funny enough, you can imagine yourself, like we're talking about this article, uh, being, you know, communist, but in only a way an American can in this like radically individualistic way, like it's a consumer right. choice that you make. Um, if there's anything that being honest about what's going on in China does is it, it shows one of the, the themes of our show that we constantly try to bring up, is that to be the church, to, to have this faith, is bottom line 
irreducibly social. And so when you talk about what is the common good and how that has to look like on the ground, it's easy for us to try to focus mostly on our individual beliefs, but it really gets into the nitty gritty of diplomatic relations or not. It gets into the nitty gritty of how do people persecuted live on both sides of the sanctioned fence. Uh, It gets into the nitty gritty of saying, all of the malformities we might face in the consumeristic West, um, on one hand, uh, are, are mirrored in a place like China, but then also um, that, that their solutions don't get at it in a way that the cross would get at it. And so I think that that starts to be an interesting way to look at the Chinese situation for us, even though it might be selfish. I think it's something we can learn is to say we have the luxury, which is not necessarily good, to imagine all of these things as a hobby. And the Chinese Christians living the faith as they do, the choice is not theirs to even do that if they wanted, and can be a sterling corrective and example about what it means to live as a church socially and as a community. I don't know if that's a question I was throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an excellent, an excellent sort of summary to, to how the Chinese church thinks you know, the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel is one of unity and, and, and of relations. And uh, I once went into a, a theater in China, and, and there was no one else in the theater. I sat far, far in, in the back, and a group of Chinese walked in, and as an American, I thought, they'll sit at the other side of the theater. But no, they came and they sat right next to me. And I, I said, gosh, this is a huge theater, and there's no one else here. Why are you sitting next to me? And they said, because we're Chinese. We, we can't imagine someone who would want to be alone. The church functions in a relational way, and one of the beautiful things about uh, the Catholic Church in China is how much uh, there's this Catholic idea that there's no such thing as a stranger. There's only a friend I haven't met yet. We are supposed to be part of one church, one body, for the common good of our world. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Tony, and I... I I apologize if my thoughts are kind of jumping around this this, um, on the show today, Um, but I guess with all that we've we've said and sort of like the cautions that you've set forth, uh, do you have any sense of how um, I guess to use the term the Vatican? I know that you know that's kind of an umbrella term for for leaders in Rome who are trying to sort this out. Like what? Do you have, could you encapsulate kind of maybe their concerns and what they're thinking about as they say, like, we want to pastorally care for Chinese uh, Catholics? Right. Well, I, I think um, one of the interesting realities of our present moment with the Vatican and China is that the, those who are making decisions regarding the Church in China have, are all new to that role. So uh, mm. we don't have... Uh, and this is a this is a slight criticism, but we don't have the continuity that we that we used to have in terms of people who are racially Chinese. That, for example, there are no Chinese really at the higher levels uh, who are making decisions regarding the church in China. Oh, and, <laughs> sorry, and, and, I, I shouldn't and, have said that out loud, but that's surprising. Well, <laughs> sorry. And it and, it, and it complicates things. It complicates things. So there's a dialectic. Those those cardinals and bishops who are Chinese are are very much vocally wishing that those who are making decisions in, 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 in the Holy See are, are in Rome are, are, would have a better representation of Chinese people, right? So we're in this complicated moment. But there is, there is a, a truism, and that is that the, the so-called underground church has its own struggles. 
And there are contingents that are, we, we have to admit, are maybe quite superstitious in ways that are not nor- normatively Catholic. And, and they're also uh, enclavable. They, they exist in these communities, and they're not really relational in the sense that the Church wants to be and, and norm- normally functions as. So the, the, the Holy See is trying, I think, to normalize, and that's the, words, that's the word they're using, trying to normalize the state of the Church in China, normalize how bishops are, are elected and consecrated, and to essentially unify all of the, the bishops so that there are, there are no divisions. So that's Because you were saying, yeah, you were saying to me in a conversation, for instance, that seminary formation has been really scattered and sort of uneven there, and obviously that's always going to be a concern for church authorities that priests are getting the, the best training possible? Uh, well, I, as a Catholic, I think one of the most important things we, we, we do is, is, is to focus on the formation of priests. They're the future yeah. and reality of our church. We need good and holy priests. Um, there, are two, there are two major problems in, in China, and that is the, the seminary training of the underground community, or the sanctioned, I mean the unsanctioned, and the seminary training of the opposite. They're both large problems. Mm. In the sanctioned seminaries, the seminarians must, by law, attend Marxist courses. Goodness, there's there's no guessing what kinds of things they're reading and studying. On the on the other end of the spectrum, you have this underground community with with no access to books, or with very little access to books, or with very little access to anyone who with with college degrees. So uh, who is who are teaching them their theology and their philosophy and their ecclesiology? So uh, there are great there are great weaknesses in both contexts in terms of seminary training, and I think the Vatican is rightly trying to find a way to remedy that problem. No, it, uh, when we talk about the matters of prudential decisions, and of course, a hundred years, two hundred years from now, we can, you know, very scholarly look back and uh, you know try to give the sober impression of what people should or should not have done. Um, this is a live example of um, the, the the reason I thank God every day that I'm not a bishop or an official in the church because this is the pre- the the pressing reality is there will be downside to any choice that you make. Uh, and, and we can look back, you know, through the Protestant Reformation, the French Revolution, all these things. You you see people um, in the church trying to say, how do we make the best decision where there is no, you know, obvious perfect decision? Um, and, and that's what the Vatican's face. So I, I think that, like you said, there's plenty um, to criticize, and especially if it's um, people making decisions maybe devoid of people who have experience on the ground. Um, but I think, again, one more time, what we're, we're brought to, to say is, oh my goodness, we need to pray for the, the Vatican officials, too, because this is a difficult, um, difficult waters to navigate. Right, and I think that's absolutely the case right now. Well, we're, we're getting to uh, the end here, and like I, I, I prophesized, not saying I'm a prophet, but prophesized this one easily. <laughs> we could have talked for an entire other hour about this. This has been such a fantastic yeah. topic to have you on the show. Tony, could you tell people where they could look for more of your work, books, articles, things like this, if they want to learn more about the, the, the church in China? Goodness, all, all, all authors just want their books to sell, so I guess I would say go to Amazon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I type in Anthony E. Clark, and you'll, I guess the word China in Catholic, you'll find, you'll, find, uh, you'll find works. I think the one that is probably read the most is a book on the, mar- the martyrs, the Chinese Catholic saints, canonized in 2000 by uh, uh, Pope St. Uh, John Paul II. 
It's a book called The China Saints, Catholic Martyrdom During the Qing Dynasty. That's a good start, I think. Yeah, well, the other one I want to throw out there is the Catholic World Report has a, a column, Clark on China, so people can uh, get started there as well. Um, Dr. Clark, thank you so much for being on the show. God bless. We'll have to have you on again. Thank you so much. This is The Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, our family, our city, our state, the entire world, solar system, the whole kit and caboodle. The Uncommon Good. We'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.